program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Have you ever wanted to go behind bars in a women's prison, find out really what happens there? We, we get little glimpses every time a celebrity goes into prison, um, like Martha Stewart. But we don't really, really know the truth. Uh, I actually have spent uh, a fair amount of time visiting prisons in my work as a psychiatric expert witness, and um, especially when uh, I spent a lot of time behind prison walls when I was doing the, when I was the expert for the Jenny Jones talk show murder trial, and was visiting Jonathan Schmitz for many, many visits. Um, but and so so I know that that the public doesn't really get to see what what really goes on. But I've never I don't think I have ever been in a woman's prison. Thank goodness. Then we have my guest Brooke Carey, <laughs> who was not only in a woman's prison. I mean, not only has seen the inside of it, not as a prisoner. Let me clarify. But she is the author of the Accidental Warden. And um, Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Um, I. I want to start out by asking you how you wound up um, as the accidental warden. I mean, obviously this wasn't something that you had planned, but I can't imagine anyone just waking up one day and saying, I'm going to be a warden of a woman's prison. I mean, there must have been some something in your life, so, you know, a, a relative who was in law enforcement or an attorney or what, I mean, when you were a little girl, <laughs> did you ever play prison warden? <laughs> when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Really? Or an attorney. Oh, well, so okay. I would have been on the other side of that. Actually, uh, I was living in my, uh, my main home in the Detroit area, and uh, one of the companies that I owned was one that would help people uh, have new careers. I did mm. career counseling and resume writing and organized job-finding programs for them. And as part of that, I would look in the Wall Street Journal and other newspapers looking for appropriate positions for which my clients might apply. Hmm. And I happened to see the ad from the California Women's Prison, and I recognized immediately that they couldn't say they were looking for a woman because of the law, but they obviously needed and wanted a woman and weren't going to hire a man. Mm. So I thought, well, my insight into this could be valuable. So I called several of my women clients and urged them to apply for this because in those days the salary was pretty good for a woman. Uh-huh. And uh, they all said they didn't want to or they were afraid or they thought that was disgusting and <laughs> so on. 
So when I got home that night and I was repeating this to my husband in dismay, he said, well, why don't you apply? You've got the credentials to do this, and you'd be great at that. So I thought, oh, that might be fun and interesting. Fun. (laughs) So I sent in my resume, and I didn't think another thing of it. The next thing that happened was about six months later, I got a letter from the Department of Corrections in California saying that I had been selected out of 380 (laughs) people, along with two other applicants, to fly to uh, Southern California for an interview. And uh, so I went to the library, and I found one book about women in prison, Hmm. (laughs) which I read avidly, and that was my homework for for the interview. Huh. And what um, what credentials did you have that you think they found particularly useful? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, basically, I'm an administrator. I'm a business consultant. I have no experience in corrections. And what they were looking for, I found out later, was they wanted an administrator, yes, but they knew they were going to have problems in that prison and they were looking for somebody to come in from the outside and take the fall for the problem. Hmm. And I wasn't aware of this at all, fat, dumb, and happy. <laughs> so I went to California and had the interview. And one of the interesting things about it was, and don't let me be babbling Brooke now, Dr. No, Carol, no, go ahead. <laughs> was, uh, it was a panel interview. And since I had over 2,500 clients that I had coached, for interview techniques in my other businesses, I was pretty good at doing the interview. Mm-hmm. So I said, maybe some of your listeners can learn from this. I said, my resume tells you what I know how to do. Would it be helpful if I tell you who I am during this interview? Mm-hmm. And they thought that was very strange and different and interesting. So they said, by all means, tell us. So I told them things about who I am such as, I'm, I'm brave, but I'm not tough. Uh, I'm probably not tough enough for this job because I'm very kind and I take on people's uh, problems and I care about them and I work on them. Um, I'm pretty smart. I learn rapidly. Uh, I have no experience in corrections whatsoever, but I'm not afraid of new challenges and so on. Uh-huh. So... Then they said, well, why don't you go take a little stroll in the campus, which is what they called the yard of the prison, while we interview the other two women who are here, and uh, we'll call you when we're ready. So I went on a, on a tour with what I thought was a secretary from the office. And I turned to her and said, well, how long have you worked here? And she laughed and said, oh, I don't work here. I'm an inmate. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know if I should be scared or worried or what. And uh, I think about people who are in the military putting their lives on the line every day. Well, I expected to be killed every day I went to work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when people tell me they have a tough job, I just sort of smile. Mm-hmm. In any case, we got to the um, education room where where the schools, all the school classes were held. And as we walked in, I smelled something burning. And I turned to this inmate and I said, do you have a procedure for fire drill or handling fire? I think there's, this building is on fire. 
And she looked at me strangely and laughed, and she said, Oh, Mrs. Carey, don't you know what marijuana smells like? <laughs> and I said, Well, actually, no, I don't. I told you how, how, how naive I was. So, of course, they were having an illegal smoke in one of the classrooms. I felt pretty silly. And just about that time, they called me back to the administration office. Congratulations, Mrs. Carey, you've been hired, and you start immediately. <laughs> Do you think it was because they they heard that you didn't know what marijuana I was? I don't know. And they said, well, we're going to run for the plane now to go back to Sacramento. So you jump in the car with us, and we'll talk on the way to the airport. Huh. So I had no idea what the job was, what the salary was, what anything was. And I was sort of numb about the whole thing, and then they jumped on the plane and waved and said, we'll be in touch, bye-bye, here are the keys. <laughs> so that's that's the beginning of the end. So so your husband moved, so you had a move there. My husband was an executive at General Motors, and nobody leaves General Motors, for heaven's sake, or at least uh-huh. they didn't in those days. These days are a little different. And... uh Yes, he followed me a couple months later. He had I had five businesses that I was in charge of, and he had to sell our house and all my little companies. Wow. And uh, he showed up with, with little limp flowers and a kiss. He'd missed me. <laughs> it took about six, uh, not six months, about three months for us to get resettled there. Huh, so it's so interesting because obviously you really did want to do it. But, you know, you said when you were a little girl you wanted to be a psychiatrist or a lawyer, and this was a way of sort of combining the two. So it really was, you know, speaking to you for you to have, um, and that was a big deal to dissolve all these businesses and move and, and so on. And obviously this was something that you really wanted to do. So, so tell us, you know, what it was like, how you set about doing it. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, and this is all described in my book to, in greater detail, but you, you tell me if I'm talking too much. I will, I will. You're not. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, uh, I didn't realize it till later, but they had hired two people, two men, from other prisons in the state to be my associate warden, and I thought it was to assist me, but really it was these men were told that they were to run the prison and that I was to be the figurehead. And I, they didn't tell me that. So I, there I am thinking I'm running things and being in charge of things, and they are undermining me hmm. with the staff. And uh, it was very difficult. What I learned was that the residents, as we called the inmates, really liked me a lot because I was kind and I believe I was fair, and I was very different from any other warden that had ever worked there because I didn't come from the tough uh, movie version of being a warden. Right. And so uh, there I am going about my chores and thinking I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I am not making any headway, really. I'm being sabotaged from behind. And so it wasn't until really toward the end that I learned this and uh, became aware of it, but at that point, some things came up that made it impossible for me to stay there. Well, okay, before we get to that, the climax of this story, (laughs) um, let's talk about some of the more exciting adventures you had while you were warden. I understand, for example, that uh, amongst your residents were 
the Manson girls. That's right. When I first got there, well, let me back up a little. Sure. I, uh, I was being appointed to this job, which was news to me. I thought I was being hired. But I was being appointed by Governor Jerry Brown, and he didn't like me. <laughs> and I had lunch with him because he wanted to meet me. And after the lunch, he told my boss that he didn't like me at all, huh. but that he was, o- was okay that I be appointed. And uh, the reason this is so vivid in my mind when I found out that he didn't like me, I wanted to know why. Right. And they said, he thinks you have too much self-confidence. Mm. Well, if you don't have a lot of self-confidence, there's no possible way you can do this job. Right. And it came to mind because I'm getting ready to do a workshop at uh, Fort, Fort Sam Houston here in San Antonio for a group of the troopers about how to build self-confidence. And I was just thinking about Mm-mm. Governor Brown's comment to me. About right. This. In any case, um, uh, I guess I lost myself. Well, no, I was asking about the Manson girls. I oh, guess yeah. that's why you thought about self-confidence, yeah, right. because you need well, to be... Well, Gary Brown said, your job has got three parts. The first one is keep people in there. Huh. In other words, my predecessor had allowed a lot of escapes. Hmm. Keep people in there. Keep them healthy. And if you possibly can, after those two things, try to work on rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but rehabilitation is not something you do to people. It's what they do for themselves. Right. And you just stay out of the way and try to aid and abet them in doing it. So uh, I, I decided, I, he said, every decision that's made about the Manson girls, I want you to personally make. And you're personally responsible for everything that happens with them and to them. I felt all right with that. So I discovered that they were being housed in a little uh, hut in the middle of the campus. So uh, the first week I was there, I told one of my counselors that I wanted to meet them. And we went out there to this little hut, and there they were. How many of them were there? Well, I had Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Cranwinkle. I had Susan Atkins. And I had Mary Bruner that you haven't heard of. Mary Bruner was Charlie Manson's wife and had his baby. Hmm. And uh, you don't hear much about her because she wasn't part of the murders, per Hmm. se. She was in there for another offense. Hmm. Uh, And after speaking with them, they were like your daughter and mine. They were nice girls because they were off the drugs, and and the three or four of them had been well-raised with nice manners and so on. I mean, they weren't wild, obnoxious hippies at all. Uh-huh. So I decided that they should be released from this solitary confinement in this hut and sent into the general population so that they could have a job on campus and they could uh, attend classes and maybe work toward a college degree. Uh-huh. So they were let free into the general population, and that worked out very well for them. And nobody objected, and it all seemed to work out fine. And I was happy that I was able to do something so uh, civilized for hmm. him. You know, you, you also don't hear about his having a son. You said Mary... Well, I don't know if it was a son. I know it was a baby. Or, or a baby. I mean, um, I mean, that's interesting that there's a baby of Charlie Manson walking around yeah, out there. I never heard much more about that either. But 
Mary Bruner was always a thorn in my side because of some bad behavior. I had to keep Mary locked in her cell. Now, you always think about women in prison being locked in their cells. Well, in my prison, they were never locked in their cells. They were walking around the campus all day, getting into trouble. (laughs) Nobody was locked up. So when people were misbehaving, then they had to be under a lock until they could shape up. Uh And so she decided to sue me for whatever, (laughs) and I went to the head of the... To sue you for locking her up? Yeah. I went to the head of the department, and I said politely, well, how shall I handle this? And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, she's suing me personally for keeping her in a locked cell. And they said, well, that's kind of too bad. This is how it works, Brooke. Um, The men uh, wardens have all gotten together, and they have a special little program to protect them against uh, lawsuits. But it doesn't include you because you're a female. So you're kind of on your own. And I said, you mean my assets are on the line for lawsuits like this? And they said, well, yeah, that's kind of how it is. (laughs) You know, people said to me, why don't you do a movie about this? Yes. And I've been thinking about that because a lot of this is really rather funny. Yes. Well, so, okay, so what happened with that? I mean, first of all, it's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, what kind of... (laughs) <laughs> what kind of lawsuit for, I mean, how would a lawyer, how does that even fly to have a lawsuit for being locked up when you're in prison? You hear me chuckling about this. <laughs> and, you know, I still get amused by a lot of this. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think there could be a lawsuit, but it could drag on and on, and it could have taken my asset right. on and on. Luckily, I left the, the prison system before anything really happened about it. So I never really had to deal with it. Hmm. I only worked there for a year to the day. And the reason for that was when they moved me from Michigan to California, they said, if you will serve in this position for one year, we will reimburse your moving it. Oh, uh uh-huh. You mean you would have left before then? Well, I actually only worked like um, 10 months. Because I had so much overtime built up. Uh-huh. I had like two months of overtime that I had coming to me, so I didn't have to work the full 12 months in order to earn the 12 months. Right. You understand what I'm saying. Yes. See, I used to go to the prison at 7 in the morning at the changing of the shift so that I could meet and get acquainted with the night crew. Mm-hmm. And then I would show up in the, you know, at night when some of the late afternoon people were checking in. I put in a lot of overtime. But, but yeah, I was on my own with the lawsuit. So, I mean, they probably um, never had a warden who put in that much time and, and energy into, you know, really trying to do a good job, which was also unnerving. I mean, one thing that I've learned from my visits to prisons um, uh, is that, the status quo, I mean, first of all, it is very um, sexist, and uh, secondly, they, there is great um, effort put in, into maintaining the status quo um, and not letting outsiders or not, not letting outsiders in, not letting change in, you know, and so on. And so you were a threat to everybody. Well, I, that's true. That's true. And a lot of, there was a lot of lesbian activity going on when I got there. 
Yes, and, I was going to ask you about that. Sex in prison, yes. Well, it's very interesting to people. I'm talking about more in terms of the staff than the inmates. Really? And, and lesbianism in prison on the, on the part of an inmate is a felony and has to be prosecuted. Wait a second. It's a felony between... between two women inmates. Lesbian sex between two women inmates is a felony? In prison. It's in not prison. a felony outside of prison. Well, yes, that's what I meant. In prison. Right. I and didn't so know that. it has that. to be reported. It has to be followed up. And, uh, you know, I'm... I don't know how much time we have. I'm telling you a lot of funny stories. Well, no, we we st- we still have a half an hour, so um, keep going. Well, I'll that, tell you. That's amazing well, because no, had it been reported? Well, okay, let me ask you. Before you was the warden before you a man or a woman? It was a woman. The law says it has to be a woman. Oh, really? Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, that's how you knew. Okay. And and uh, that's a delicate subject for me, so I want to move to something else. Okay. Let me tell you this. Yeah. While I was there, women, uh, a group of women came to the outside and paraded around the perimeter of the prison with bullhorns shouting, gay is cool, gay is cool, and demonstrating. So I had one of my associate wardens go outside, and I said, go and speak to those ladies. Find out what is their issue. Mm-hmm. I'll be very happy to speak to them about it. So he went out, and took him quite a while to come back. And he finally said, well, Brooke, they don't have an issue. They just want to parade around saying gay is cool, <laughs> and they don't want to talk to anybody. Huh. And I thought that was really funny. <laughs> you know, it's like they wasted all their time driving out from Los Angeles. Huh, huh. Well, I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> uh, let me t- Maybe they were trying to cheer up the prisoners. Well, well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll come back to that well, after the break. Um, my guest today with some very interesting inside stories on women in prison is Brooke Carey. She's the author of uh, a new book called The Accidental Warden, My Unexpected Year as Warden of the California Women's Prison. And so when we come back, we'll be back with more stories and uh, more of the inside stories of what life is really like for women behind bars. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Keeping families together whole and healthy is sometimes a serious challenge to parents. And when there's a crisis, where do you turn for help? Right here, The Parents' Hour with Dr. Arlene Kerman, an open and frank forum covering both legal and social issues surrounding our kids. Tune in for The Parents' Hour with Dr. Arlene Kerman every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Radio Network. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? 
Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with Brooke Carey. She is the author of a memoir called The Accidental Warden, My Unexpected Year as Warden of the California Women's Prison. And she's uh, telling us some juicy tidbits <laughs> about what goes on behind bars in women's prison. And one of the juicy tidbits was uh, this um, idea that, that it's, or this law, it's not, just an idea. Um, this law that well, that it's a felony for two inmates, two female inmates, to have sex in prison. You know, now is it a law? Um, is it a felony for two male? I mean, I know that there's a problem, of course, with men. Um, uh, you know, ganging up on other men and having sex, uh, raping them essentially in prison, or even just having sex. Um, it's, it's, I presume it's a felony for men as well. I'm, I'm sure it is. I just, I, I didn't. I was so busy, I never had a time to figure out what men could do. But, uh, I, <laughs> well, okay. So what did you do as warden? I mean, that must have been going. It must have been rampant. How no, did no, you handle really. that? People like to think that, but not really. What happens is that women who get sent to prison are have basic nesting instincts. And so they tend to gather into like family-like groups. And uh, some will be the mother feature figure and some will be the father figure and so on. And uh, they get very close and they get physical in terms of hugging and kissing. But it's not sexual. And uh, in some cases, it turns into something sexual. But when the women leave the prison, they go back to being who they were before mm-hmm. they came into prison. And mm-hmm. so they don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. So it, there isn't really a lot of it. I saw quite a lot of hand-holding 
Uh, but uh, there are some women in my prison who were sending out a signal very definitely that they were lesbian. One, one of these women was named Bubble Up. <laughs> and I did not know that Bubble Up was a soft drink that people in California enjoy. I'd never heard of Bubble Up. So my first day there, I was walking across the campus, and along comes this strangely dressed woman. She's wearing men's jeans and a man's jacket and a man's fedora. And she came up to me, and she, in a very hoarse voice, she says, My name is Bubble Up. <laughs> and I looked at her. I trying to figure out what it, she'd said to me. I finally figured out she'd said her name, and I said, Well, I'm Mrs. Carey. I'm the new superintendent here. I'm the warden. And she proceeded to make small talk with me, gesturing a lot. And so at the end of this five-minute meeting I'd had with Bubble Up, she went her way and I went mine. And I didn't think anything of it until the staff member said, well, Bubble Up really did a number on you today. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, all that time she spent gesturing and talking with you, everybody in the whole place was watching. And she went back to her dormitory and told everybody that in her meeting with you, she told you how she wanted things to be run around here. <laughs> And as you're nodding and smiling, she's <laughs> telling everybody that you're agreeing with following her orders. <laughs> oh, wow. So, you know, you can fall into stuff like that yes. just out of being naive. The other thing that happened in my first day, uh, first hour, actually, I was in my office, and we got word that there was a big fight down at the other wing of the administration building. And so, naturally, I rush down there to see what I can do. And as you have figured out, I'm kind of a verbal person. And I figured I can handle anything with words. Well, here's, here's a bunch of ladies really fighting in a very, like, not boxing either, but tough fighting. And I rush into the middle of it to see what I can do. Well, I thought my staff was going to have a heart attack mm. because I did not know that the state of California has no um, philosophy on bargaining for hostages. You, oh. get, you get caught as a hostage and too bad for you. They don't bargain for you and they don't do squat about it. And so my staff was very frightened that I was going to end up uh, being killed or damaged by the, the inmates. Right, And I, again, naive and unaware of all of this, I'm trying to put down the fight. So I got into a whole lot of things because I had no experience and I didn't know anything about running a prison. Well, I imagine that you focused more on this on, and got some programs together to try to encourage more rehabilitation. That's right, because the programs that were there when I arrived um, were pretty obsolete, actually. And I found that, you know, these women wanted to work and they wanted to have activities and they wanted to earn their way out. So, um, for example, we had a sewing factory and we made uh, outfits for the state. These are for the men who do the highway work and where they wear the orange yes. uh, uniforms over their jackets and so on. Yes. We sewed those, and we made flags and things like that. But the 
equipment was obsolete, so that when a woman would come out of prison and try to get a job in a sewing uh-huh. factory, they'd just laugh at her. So I got tried to get new equipment to do things, and I, I set up a program in the food service department so that they could learn not only cooking, but uh, food service in, in the way of decorating food, you know, making uh, roses out of radishes and so on, uh-huh. that they use in the upscale hotel. Uh-huh. Uh, and we had, instead of uh, three different dining rooms, all with the same menu, we had three different menus so that people who wanted salads only could eat in the salad dining room, and those that were more hungry could eat in the full-scale dining room. And and that was pretty successful. People liked that very much, because some of them were trying to lose weight, and others, you could never make them full. Uh-huh. And what about um, visitation? Were, were there problems, you know, with men coming to visit them? Not so much men. Uh, a lot of the caretakers of their children would come and bring the children. You mean like n- nannies or, or what like mothers? Oh yeah, the grandma would bring the children or the yeah. sister, and that was very nice. They got to keep track of their children. They most of the women, over eighty percent of them, had small children, and a lot of these women um, were girlfriends of the gang members. Mm-hmm. the black guerrilla family, the Mexican mafia, the, and so on. And so they were in prison because the gang members had broken the law for the most part. And they got caught up in it and dragged into it. So I felt kind of sorry for a lot of those ladies, and I encouraged them to keep visiting with their children. We had a visiting uh, apartment above my office. And while I was there, we got it all refurnished and fixed up nicely. It looked like a rundown motel when I got there. Uh-huh. But it was all cleaned up with new appliances and so on. <clears throat> so they could cook there, and, and they could have a visit with their kids. So Grandma would come bringing the kids, and they'd go upstairs to the apartment for the weekend. And that worked out quite well. So, you know, it seems like... Um in the rehabilitation, what would be the biggest, most important thing to teach them would be um, how not to get involved with bad boys, you know, on the when they got out. Did well, you have something, you know, teaching them uh, um, self-esteem or about relationships? Well, they needed to learn jobs because a lot of them were dependent on men to support them. Mm. And they, weren't, they didn't have any ability to support themselves. So they were out of control in terms of their futures. They didn't have any financial security. Um, One of the things that I learned, Dr. Carroll, that I thought was the most valuable for me, and this was shortly after I arrived there, I looked around and gathered what I had learned, because I am a good consultant after all, and I thought to myself, what is the commonality of the women in this prison? Yes. In other words, what do they? What is the factor that makes them all likely to be here? Yes. If there is one, and right away the answer came to me: lack of responsibility and self-control was very common. If they had had more self-control and more ability to be responsible, most of them wouldn't have been there. Hmm. Uh, 
today it's it's much different because the drugs have had a great big influence on everything that goes on in the prison. But in my day, uh, there were it was a lot more innocent, if you can understand that. Uh-huh. We had a riot while I was there, and my husband had to help me put the riot down. Basically, he put it down, almost single-handed, because my staff stood around wringing their hands, and my husband picked up a shotgun and went into the yard and put the riot down. <laughs> Oh, wow. And what, why were they rioting? Well, because they had planned a Christmas party. And I thought, oh, Christmas parties, I like that idea. Let's do that. Well, I didn't know what is a Christmas party in a prison. A Christmas party in a prison means that the family comes visiting and they're bringing with them a, food, a huge food basket with all kinds of homemade food uh, that has to be searched. And you can only search so much potato salad. And they stood outside the gate in a very rainy, cold day, and the staff was had to volunteer because I didn't have money to pay them to do this. So they had to volunteer to serve the party. And uh, so the staff is out there, and these visitors are grumbling because they're having to stand in the cold, and the staff is freezing, and everybody's getting grouchy and out of, out of temper, and uh, pretty soon uh, after the first party, the staff came to me and said, we're not doing this anymore. Hmm. Sorry, we just, we're not doing this. Uh, we should be home with our kids. We're not paid to do this, and uh, we're not doing it. So I had to call in the head of the student council, inmate council, and say, I'm sorry, we've had to cancel the party. Oh, wow. The word got through there. They set the campus on fire, and they took the Christmas tree and threw it through the plate glass window of my office, and they scrambled in after it and got ready to run out the front door. Wow. And they made such good progress toward this that they surprised themselves. And so nobody escaped. They were just sort of in awe of themselves. Mm -hmm. And by that time, my staff kind of got itself together and drove them out of the administration building and back into the yard. And about that time is when I got a phone call saying, you better get back here. And uh, I don't want to give you all the details, but there's a lot to this, and it's kind of an interesting story. Well, what do you but mean my, you can't stop now? But my what husband happened? Did. You were saying that your husband came Well, and... my husband is a Green Beret, and he's trained in riot control and all kinds of things. Thank goodness for him. Yeah. And... Uh, we didn't even have a key to the armory, for gosh sakes. We couldn't get any weapons out. Huh. <laughs> but meantime, the state police and some other uh, people from the other prisons had shown up for support, and all these guns were sitting around on the counter of the lobby. And my husband saw one of the guns, and he hesitated a minute and said, Follow me, men. And two of my female tiny little correction officers followed him into the yard. And there they were playing Frisbee with, with plate glass that they'd broken out of the window. Oh, wow. So all this glass was whizzing around that could cut your throat. And uh, they had set the place on fire, and they were throwing the TVs out the windows. And It was kind of a violent thing. I had an antique fire engine that managed to creak its way to the front of the yard and where it broke down for the 50th time. And... <laughs> So they set that on fire, and 
There's a lot of funny stuff about this, if you don't mind my chuckling about it. Well, yeah, except, no, I, but the only thing, um, yes, I mean, you can sort of imagine a funny scene, but the only thing is that what's sort of sad about it is that it was really your efforts to humanize and improve uh, the prison that wound up, um, ironically, uh, in this in this riot, you know, because in other words, you had gone along with this Christmas party, you know, which was a, a kind gesture, and and you had sort of gotten their hopes up, and then you were let down by your staff not wanting to uh, continue, you know, looking through the potato salad. Yeah, they knew and, what was going to happen. What? And they all got together, and they, they, you know, I I didn't really have a choice about it. And that, those are very kind words, Dr. Carroll. Well, I mean, it's really true. It's so, I'm sure you must have felt really disappointed that, um, that you know, I, I mean, I, that was kind of what, what led right to your, uh, I mean, after the riot, is that when they asked for your resignation? Oh, no, or? no, no, nobody asked for it. Let me tell you a real quick story about that, because I'm kind of proud of it. After the riot, we, we had hearings. Uh, with a panel of staff members, and that took quite a while actually to try to determine in a fair way which of our 800 inmates had participated in the riot, mm-hmm. because of course they'd burned state property and so on. Uh, so we were very careful to uh, be fair about it, and I chaired these hearings. They went on for several weeks. Then, I, after we had decided who we thought we could hold responsible, it turned out there were like 300 people. Wow. So I had uh, some a few beds in the psychiatric hospital that I had, and it was the only place that was separate from the main uh, campus where it had a separate fence around it. It had its own kitchen and its own classroom, and I decided that I should put all these troublemakers into the psychiatric hospital where we could isolate them from the rest of the campus and put in the best cooks and the best counselors and the best correction officers and take charge of the place. Uh-huh. Because these were the people that were keeping everything in an uproar all the time. So we did that, and it was working well. And I went out there every day and made sure everything was okay. And nobody was unhappy out there. They were... They're greeting me happily and rushing over wanting to hug me when I go in there. Uh-huh. So then I got a phone call from the governor's office uh, telling me that a representative of the governor was coming down uh, to visit with me about this. So um, I was kind of excited about this because I was proud of what we had done. Uh-huh. So uh, an attorney named... I won't even say what her name was, came down and said, I understand that you have a lockup unit and I would like to uh, investigate that. Uh-huh. Well, yes, ma'am, I'd be happy to show that to you. And I was. So we went out to the psychiatric unit. We went in and they're all greeting me. Hi, Mrs. Carey, how are you? Oh, what a nice dress you're wearing. How's everything, you know? Uh-huh. So... This kind of surprised this attorney, because yeah. right? uh, she was expecting the movie-type stolen people. And 
so I was showing her around and, you know, the kitchen and what the menus were and all that stuff. And so when, when we came outside and she turned to me and she said, Mrs. Carey, what is the ethnic balance of the women in this unit? I said, what? She, well, she said, well, is it 33% Caucasian, 33% Chicano, and 30, 33% African American? And I said, well, no, that isn't how it is. Meaning that's not how the situation is. And she said, oh, that is how it is. And let me tell you, if you don't have an ethnic balance in this unit, by tomorrow morning, you have to let them all out. And I said, are you telling me that I have to go out to the campus and pick up whomever I can find of the right ethnic ethnicity and put them in here so we have an ethnic balance, whether or not they participated in the riot? She said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. I said, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. It's called, you're going to get my resignation because I'm not doing that. Yes. I am not doing that. So I called up to Sacramento and I told my boss's boss's boss that I was resigning effective in the morning. So nobody asked for my resignation, but I just wasn't going to do that to those inmates. Wow. That's not fair. And I was fair and they knew it and I wasn't going to do that to them. I mean, is that because, was is there some law that... Um the regulation that if you have a locked unit, it has to be equally... I mean, that just seems preposterous. Well, it is. You can't, you can't create... That ain't um, how it is. <laughs> ...an ethnic balance if the people, you know, <laughs> Thank aren't. you. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I'd had you there on my side. But I just thought... Well, one of the things that had happened was that the state was earnestly trying to do an affirmative action program but its earnestness was only in terms of my prison. <laughs> so, like, they told me that I had to hire a African-American female boiler operator. <laughs> and you're just not going to find that in those days because <sighs> those people were trained in the Navy. And they didn't come out of the Navy being African-American female boiler operator. Oh, wow. And so... I was in a terrible pinch at all times trying to staff. The other thing that was going on, boy, you're getting a lot of stories out of me today, was that if a man in a male prison, a male guard, was uh, was a bad uh, correctional officer, he would be assigned to the woman's prison as punishment. So I had all the gold brickers, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to tell you what some of the names were we, we used for these people. Uh, but And a lot of them had been in the system so long that they had days and days and days of vacation time coming. Mm. So they never were there, even though they were on my payroll. Oh, wow. So when the, the, the uh, correctional department will say, well, you're full up, you're full up with staff. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't have enough people to keep the doors closed. Yes, yes. And so uh, it was all a sham, actually. So when I told them that I was resigning, all the brass who had who had interviewed me flew down immediately the next day from Sacramento, and there they all were, and uh, 
I went in, and my staff was sitting at the conference table in, next to my office. And my secretary was crying so hard that I had to send her home. And uh, it was rather emotional. Yeah, I so, was thinking that the, the, the women, especially the inmates, must have been really disappointed. Well, not, not only that. Well, I'll tell you what they, what they did. But I said, well, uh, now I'm leaving, and uh, this, Mr. So-and-so is going to be your boss until a new warden is uh, assigned, and I would appreciate your cooperation with him, and I've enjoyed working with you, and thank you, and goodbye. And then I turned to the head of the department and said, I would like a letter of uh, recommendation, please. Oh, we'll be delighted to send you one. I said, no, no, I'm going to wait. I'll wait for it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, you know, I didn't have this career counseling business for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, my, and that's the, uh, that's the music for that means the end. But I do want to give people your website, first <laughs> of all. Um, it's accidental dash... No, no, hyphen. I... Hyphen. Yes, hyphen. Okay. <laughs> well, I... That's what right. works. Okay, accidental-warden.com. The book, again, is called The Accidental Warden. My unexpected year as warden of the California Women's Prison. And I'd like to thank my guest, Brooke Carey, again, for sharing some of her stories. Yes, this would make a wonderful movie. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it really does show what, how bureaucracy can can stop progress and can stop human kindness and the kind of things that prisoners need a lot you know the kind of rehabilitation and new um, progressive techniques and 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 someone feeling that someone cares about them and that unfortunately um, gets sucked out by all of this bureaucracy well thank you very much for sharing these stories with us and oh, I wish you well with uh, with all of your endeavors, and yes, uh, I think you do need to continue to bring this to the attention of the public because I'm sure this is still, I know this is still a major problem for women and men's prison. Yes, and let's try to help women coming out of prison by getting yes. them jobs. Yes, absolutely. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.